Welcome into Loserville, folks. Philip Kingston back with you. Um, we will be having some uh, champagne uh, this evening while recording. No more mezcal, I believe, is the rule that we've come to. <laughs> what a cacophonous mess we made last week, Tyler. Everybody was having a good time. Well, and I think there were good points made, but they were made in a very annoying way. I listened back to the uh, audio. Um, we're also doing our best to try to do a little bit of volume balancing. I, I, I know I'm just never going to be the same kind of audio quality um, martinet that that TC Fleming was, but <clears throat> yeah, last week was tough. Sorry. Thanks for thanks for hanging with us, listeners. Um, we have, we'll tease ahead. I had an idea. It's not my idea, actually. I had, Melissa had an idea that if council is not going to give TC Broadnax a review, uh, of his performance, then Loserville must really, that we, we, we will have to step into the breach, I think. And, um, that show is coming up with a special guest who I cannot believe has agreed to appear on our airwaves, you'll have, so you'll have that to look forward to later this month. But um, Tyler has been uh, agitated about <laughs> some local stories, so have at it, dude. Yeah, uh, lots of things going out there, um, you know, nationally, statewide, uh, but also some interesting things going on locally as well. Um, the big one that uh, I think has sort of engendered some conversation lately has been. Uh, sort of text dots so the Texas Department of Transportation coming out with their official recommendation on what the city should do or what the state should do with 345. Um, for those who aren't familiar, uh, Highway 345 is the shortest highway in the nation, right? Interstate highway. Shortest interstate highway. So it's a 1.7 miles. It's what you would take if you are going from like I-30 to get to... No, it connects the northern end of uh, I-45 to the southern end of US-75. 75, right? And kind of all the way around that way. Um, and separates downtown from Deep Ellum. Um, highway was built, um, I think we could probably say, uh, with the express intent of separating what at one time was a black neighborhood from the central business uh, district. It's a little worse than that. The it, it not only separated a vibrant black neighborhood. It was a mixed use in it, neighborhood of both residential and uh, commercial uses, black owned businesses. But the the stuff closest to um, downtown was black owned housing and businesses that were torn the fuck down. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not shocking, uh, Dallas's history of, of racism uh, exceeds even the highways. If you want to read a really interesting book about that, my friend Colin Yarborough wrote uh, a paved the way book that came out um, last year. Colin uh, sort of looks at environmental racism uh, and did a deep dive of sort of the highway system in uh, Dallas. Um, fascinating read that talks about that as well as some other other um, sort of ways that were built uh, in black neighborhoods, but. Uh, so, so the debate over 345 really probably started in back, as far as I can tell, in 2014. Oh, earlier. And probably earlier than that, but at least in 2014. Earlier, it was, I would say that Patrick and, the way Patrick tells it, he and his partner came up with this idea in 2011. Okay, and this is Patrick being Patrick Kennedy, right? Yes. Urban, urban planner. So back in 2014, Texas town officials told the city uh, that they weren't going to remove 345, right? 
Um, lots of debate sort of ensued on that, and there was a feasibility study that was done that was just completed and released in May. Um, they basically recommended uh, that the elevated highway be buried in a 65-foot deep trench between downtown and Deep Ellum for folks uh, burying. I don't think about like 75 Central Expressway. Yeah, not buried, depressed. Depressed. Uh, like 635, uh, the express lane at the north side of town, right? Um, and then there would be sort of the city would have the opportunity to build decks above the depressed uh, highway, similar to what we have in Clyburn Park um, outside of, of downtown. Um, they estimate that it would be about a billion dollars to do this, um, which probably going to be a hell of a lot more, if I had to guess. Uh, and construction would not start until 2027 or 2028. Um, basically, TxDOT did their own study and said there were a couple options that folks were pressing for. So folks were, there were a lot of folks that were pretty vocal in saying they should just tear the whole thing down uh, altogether, right? Including Patrick Kennedy, um, as well as some neighborhood folks. TxDOT basically said removal is not feasible because of their concerns about traffic delays. Um, well, they didn't say not feasible, really. What they said was... Um, their their recommendation was to keep a highway. I mean, none of this is surprising. TxDOT is a wholly captured, is an example of regulatory capture so that people who build and design and sell roads and highways and bridges um, to taxpayers control TxDOT. Um, so TxDOT is not an honest broker. And the history on this is sort of maybe interesting. Um, some people will know it because um, we've, we've explored it on the show before with with Patrick. Um, but that's the that's that's pre Tyler. Yes. So Patrick thinks up this idea. Does Patrick has the education and experience to flesh out the idea using TxDOT's own numbers against it and using uh, tools of real estate development to uh, show how much better Dallas would be if that were just a surface level boulevard. Uh, and by the way, just to get this out of the way at the very beginning, TxDOT's claims that replacing the highway with a surface level boulevard would create uh, excessive delays in traffic are just false. And they're brand new. They just developed those claims for this feasibility study, the city map study that they commissioned basically to keep me and Patrick off their backs um, several years ago, its most shocking um, conclusion was that complete removal and replacement with a surface level boulevard was feasible. So this is TxDOT doing a 180. And the political backstory on that is back when they did the city map study, we had a um, very gifted um, transportation commissioner representing our area named Victor Vandergriff. And he's the one who got TxDOT to do the city map study that had all of the, where they utilized more urban planning tools to get a fuller picture of what happens when you take a step like this. And so, that they they I'm not kidding. We went and Patrick and I were giving a, a lot of people hell about this project because TxDOT was purporting to 
consider 10 alternatives for the rehabilitation of I-345 and all 10 kept it a highway. And, you know, they, they, they refused to look at the tear out. And so we kept like pestering them and, and, and shaming them in public. And this was finally how Victor responded to us is he got us the city map study, which says, yeah, we can we can totally do this. Now, TxDOT, of course, put a bunch of language in there that said, well, if you do this, we're only going to pay for X amount of it or whatever. I mean, it's just been horrible to try. I mean, and I have to tell you, this is like the 40th TxDOT project I've had to be involved with. And they're the same every time. Even the people over there who are nice are still, a, their, their aims are not nice. You know, and it, it just sucks. Like when you go in with an idea of trying to do urbanism and trying to reverse some of these things that you pointed out, the sort of racist history of uh, urban highways, they're, I mean, they might, the best you're going to get out of them is a pat on the head. Yeah, it was fascinating. So Patrick sort of responded, and the proposal came out right in this feasibility study, was basically what they are calling sort of a hybrid solution. So there are folks that were saying, Tear it down. There are folks that were saying, keep it as it is. This is supposedly some sort of a compromise, which would say, let's put it in a trench, um, allow sort of surface streets to go above it, right, um, and make it a little bit more palatable to folks. You know, so Patrick uh, wrote a really long blog post that basically kind of took TxDOT's own numbers and said that it would basically add 5.5 minutes of commute time. TxDOT then said, well, he was wrong in that. Uh, and there's an interesting column that Tim Rogers from D Magazine wrote sort of when he spoke with a couple of engineers from TxDOT. Um, and they like talking in percentages, which uh, is funny because people don't understand how math works, right? But that basically... And nobody thinks of their commute as a percentage. Right, so they, But if they put percentages, then people get scared, right? So the, the numbers, they said, well, in the morning, you would have a 31 to 40% increase in travel time. And in the evenings, a 41 to 50% increase in travel times. And this is sort of historical growth in the area, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm looking currently, right, uh, I live in, in East Dallas over the 3G intersection. Um, there's that arts park that's in Trinity Groves um, that sometimes I go to with my, my friends. Uh, I'm looking now, it's 5.45 on a Friday afternoon. Uh, the time to get there is 14 minutes, according to Google. A 41 to 50%, so let's pick the middle, 46% increase in 14 minutes comes to right about six minutes of, of time, right? Um, or six minute difference, pardon me. So 14 up to 20 minutes is how long that would take, a difference of six minutes. Um, six minutes doesn't really seem like being that different from five and a half minutes, certainly. Um, but, you know, is that really worth throwing away the investment that could come from if we were to tear it out all together? Well, I think you made that point on Twitter today fairly directly. Uh, and obviously, I agree with you. I'd rather have the economic benefit. But I also want to reiterate, Patrick is using TxDOT's own numbers to, to generate these estimates. And TxDOT has a 50-year history of never being right in its projections. And it's one of these things that should get more news coverage than it does. Traffic projections literally are never right. Not just text dots, everybody, Federal Highway Administration, they all get them wrong because they all take a traffic 
um, centric approach. In fact, to the exclusion of any other factor. And traffic is a function of real estate usage. It is not a function of population. It's not a function of, it's not really a function of the form of the, 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 uh, the facility. It's, it, it is really a function of what is happening on either end of that facility. Um, and so the more you have free travel lanes, like for instance, US 75, when they expanded it, the immediate effect was economic development in Plano and north of there. Um, and it has just, it, it's, Boomed, right? it, it's exacerbated yeah. um, and it's gotten worse and worse. And so the people, so the, the political argument about this road really comes down to, TxDOT, I agree with you, is trying to frame it as some people said, leave it there. Some people said, get rid of it. We're taking a compromise solution. Not true. That's not true. No one says leave it there. There's literally not one person who's like, yeah, it should remain an elevated facility. Other than Royce West. No, no. Royce is for depressing okay. it. Yeah. Um, Ro Royce is like, yeah, absolutely make it look better. But yeah. my people need this to get from yeah. where they live to their jobs, never acknowledging that he's part of the reason that his people have to travel 40, 50 minutes a day to get to their jobs. And, you know, I'm, I, I like Royce. He and I have had a long history together, but he's fucking wrong about everything when it comes to urbanism. And it's because he's a suburban dude, you know? He has no interest in figuring out how to get employment to the people of Southeast Dallas rather than the people of Southeast Dallas Always having to, to employment. And, I, and I'm, uh, you know, it, this is an honest disagreement. He would disagree with me. I think he's demonstrably wrong and providing very poor representation to those people. But he came in early and he turned it into an equity issue. And unfortunately, the way the politics here worked, he was able to get people like the Deep Ellum Foundation, which is the nonprofit that administers the public improvement district in Deep Ellum, um, and uh, some prominent planners and some other politicians such as John Wiley Price to say that, no, 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 it, it's an equity issue and we have to have the facility remain. And what, what Patrick and the late um, uh, uh, why am I blanking on Wick's last name? Allison. The late Wick, Al Wick I am so sorry. I am, I am very sorry. I, I know exactly who you are. I just blanked for a minute. Um, he and Patrick embarked on this project of committing council members and council candidates to the position of total removal and replacement with a surface boulevard. And they were very successful on that, um, on that project, mm -hmm. including with the current council, the, the majority and the strong majority of whom committed to not WIC, but to the nonprofit they set up to do this work. Uh, and it's not a nonprofit, it's a pack actually. It makes contributions. Um, they, they caused um, people to commit to their organization that they would come down on the right side of this thing. And so the real, the real nasty political part, I mean, it, Royce West is not nasty. He's just wrong. He's very honest on this topic. The nasty part is 
three, four, five, maybe six members. So there were 12 in a year ago, 12 members mm-hmm. of the Dallas City Council in the sort of survey study that they had done had committed to sort of supporting the removal of 345, 12 of the 14. Um, and when this came up to the Transportation Committee, so that's Omar Narvaez, uh, Tanel Atkins, Adam Basildua, Kara Mendelson, Jesse Moreno, Jane Schultz, Gay Danelle Willis, None of them spoke in favor of its removal at the meeting they had at the end of June. Yep. And so in a year, we've, they've gone from 12 people on the record supporting it. Uh, and now, obviously, it's only been to the Transportation Committee. It hasn't gone to the full council um, because they're on recess. But no one on the Transportation Committee uh, would come out and speak in favor of its removal at the meeting in June. Uh, and that's collapsed has completely happened in the course of a year. Right. Um, which is... Fascinating, uh, and definitely begs you know, the sort of the question, and you know the politics as well as anybody from being on the, the city council, w- what happened in the last year uh, to cause people to, to have that change of, of opinion? The main thing is, is that nobody picked up the torch. There's no, there is no one on council who is an advocate for this issue at all. Um, they just, they aren't there. And, you know, we've talked about this, this this council, we're now past one year in and we don't have one single major initiative with the exception of the replacement of the convention center, which is, uh, not a feather in their cap in my mind. Um, and so, you know, I still like this council and I have hope for them. Um, but if they continue in this regard, if they if they continue to take transformative projects and opportunities and waste them, which is what happened here, um, their legacy will be one of extreme weakness. And this, as much as I like them, they have they have really let down the people of Dallas on this issue, and and in a very very disheartening way, in a way that will be felt for, I mean, I'll be gone. I'll be gone by the time they fix this. Right, and this is what, you know, so we talk about this theoretically marginal benefit in traffic as opposed to sort of, again, this is on text.data. data. In 2016, they estimated that removing 345 would generate an additional $2.5 billion in new net value, um, a significant increase in employment totals, and for, that's a quote, and an additional $67.4 million in property tax revenue over the course of 30 years. Um, and so again, taking from where I live at 3G to go to the Art Park in Trinity Groves, six That tax minutes, number doesn't work. Six, the 67.4 million? Uh, yeah, that doesn't, it would be significantly more. More than that. Way, way, way so more. So even, right, so take So it, there's, a, there's yeah. about a three quarters of a billion dollar project right now going in on Turtle Creek uh, across from the Perot's headquarters and that will generate a million a month. Okay. So that that's kind of the that I yeah, mean that scale. Now maybe they were netting some stuff out, yeah. but you don't I mean what are they netting? Police service it's not that's not really a marginal. You can't you can't really suss out the marginal increase in that yeah. stuff. Yeah. So it, that might be another example of dot massaging the numbers to be lower but it's still right even if it's so much greater than that again six minutes difference in trip time to turn down billions of dollars in net value property tax revenue 
employment in the area and housing um, and housing. I mean, don't undersell the affordable housing. It's it, it, that has always been a part of what Patrick has has been selling on this project. Is this is a way to get that that is what if that if the highway weren't there, it's what we would call a high opportunity area, something that has close access to employment, uh, excellent educational opportunities and transportation, especially non-automobile transportation. And in fact, Jack Matthews uh, affordable housing project on um, Live Oak is an example. He, I mean, it's in the city's planning documents as this is exactly where we want to have affordable housing because it gives people the best chance to improve their their lives. Um, and so th it's a prime area to house people and frankly, to bring back a black population to a black neighborhood, you know? Not all, like we're not trying to segregate people, but that your average black renter doesn't have the best chance of getting some of the higher priced apartments that are available in Deep Ellum today. Um, the East Quarter, which is developing on the other side of I-345, on the down downtown side, that, that's gonna be out of reach for people who need affordable housing. Well, so the you know the difference, right? Uh, the the hybrid, what they're calling the hybrid plan, plan would free up 15 and a half acres for development. Again, being the majority of that being sort of these theoretical decks, right, <laughs> that they would build. Um, if they tore it down, we would free up 245 acres of development. This is again from the, the article in, in D Magazine. Um, of the 15 and a half acres that would be freed up in the hybrid plan, eight and a half of that would be sort of those theoretical decks, right? So again, think Clyde Warren Park, but with buildings instead, right? Maybe. Um, the state, again, is not going to pay for the decks, which means the city uh, would likely be on the hook for that or private developers, right? Um, not clear on the cost, but uh, according to the, the report from D Magazine, a safe estimate seems like it would be at least $200 million. Um, Clyde Warren's 5.6 acre deck cost 112 million to build. Right. Uh, the Southern Gateway Park that's going to go over 35 in Oak Cliff will cost about 170 million dollars um, after both phases of it are completed. And that's due to a couple. That's really due to increased cost of building these structures. Inflation. And that's what Spectrum says too. Why my bill for internet? <laughs> I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Um, I pay for a lot of internet and one day we will do a show about how evil AT&T is. Um, having, having had the, uh, the opportunity to represent AT&T as, as its headquarters for six years, I'm not a fan. Um, so yeah, I mean the, this is not a realistic thing. Um, it, it's going to be you're not going to be able to say, okay, we're, we're going to, even if we can get a, a matching grant from uh, highway administration or name it, name the source, you're not going to be able to sell to taxpayers that we're going to do $50 million or $60 million or $80 million or $100 million to reclaim space above a highway for the purpose of doing the things you just listed off that could be done there, like affordable housing, like the job creation, like all that stuff. Um, because people are gonna say, 
well, that's just going to make some private developers very wealthy, and they're right about that, you know. So this is why it's this is why that's a very cynical thing for TechStot to say. And I got to tell you, here's the other thing that's coming. Um, and I don't mean to scare anybody. I'm developing property next to a deck park right now, so I'm I've definitely, but it's something I'm thinking about. PM 2.5, which is the most dangerous kind of um, pollution that you get out of highway automotive traffic is many multiples higher within a thousand feet of a highway. Um, I do not think it's out of the bounds of reason that EPA issues new guidance about what uses are allowed near highways. Um, and even if they don't, it's not good for you. It is not good for you to be near highways. And I'm, I'm really, I was a huge fan of Clyde Warren Park. I helped raise money for it initially, like in the bond package and other ways. And I, I mean, I'm very, I'm very sorry to say this, but the, it's, its days might be numbered unless we can get in, you know, unless the electric car revolution sort of cleans up the air in urban highways, urban highways are death. So, you know, Philip, you had the pleasure of, of sort of leading the charge on council against the, the Trinity toll road, right? Um, and I think if there were People folks, have already forgotten. <laughs> for folks that are committed towards trying to take this fight to the council, though it, it may seem like sort of a lost cause, you know, what would the game plan, I guess, that you would prescribe to folks who, if people feel very strongly that 345 should be torn down and we need a different solution than one that's been proposed, what would you say folks should do um, short of running for council? This is, this is pure Winston Churchill. Never give up. Yeah. We had, I could, I could recount to you 20 times when we thought we had lost on the toll road, you know? I can recount to you how it felt to be the only vote on council for making the second downtown dart alignment a subway. <laughs> you know, we didn't give up. That's it. I mean, that's just it. You have to act like it's still possible. The, the saving grace here is TxDOT is a bureaucratic entity in the state of Texas. This is not a way of describing a nimble or fast acting agency. So what they're gonna ask the city to do is to sign off on an LPA, a locally preferred alternative. Um, it looks like, based on what council looks like now, that that's going to be overwhelmingly for a depressed facility. And, but they're not, they're, they're proposing to not even start until 27 or 28. Mm -hmm. And those, those start time estimates frequently are very wrong. Um, there's an enormous amount of time left for advocacy. Um, and there will be new council members. There will be new council members this time next year. Um, and some of the people who are leaving council because of term limits have not been friendly to uh, urbanism. And so, you know, it, if, if this is something that pisses you off, well, I know it pisses you off. Like I, <laughs> this, this I'm very clear on. Um, but there, if, you know, if it pisses you off, 
none of us are like special really you know anytime you have an idea 10,000 other people already had that idea there are 10,000 people they don't all listen to this podcast but that are like you that are like me that would that are going to keep after the elected officials so that if they do pass an LPA this fall that looks like it's over and we've lost no 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 it's not over you haven't lost keep at it yeah and that's uh that was a positivity that we needed at the end of uh, last week's episode uh, that, <laughs> that we could to, not muster that's right fight them on the, the beaches um yeah you know if folks if we gave people homework again if you're upset about that contact your council person right get on the, get on the phone get on the email show up at meetings though the city council makes it incredibly hard to be able to to appear right uh, it's not convenient for people that work day jobs you can um, still appear remotely you can appear for zoom you have to sign up ahead of time right and all sign of up by 5 p.m the day before the meeting to be included at the meeting you get your three minutes um and you can use it however you want to but if you want to use it to castigate people for turtling on their previous commitments to tearing down i-345 I think that that's a pretty good use of a public comment period. You know, you, you touched on this briefly, um, as and we have sort of lamented this over a couple episodes of this podcast, has been what, what we feel like is a pretty profound lack of leadership among anybody on the, the city council currently, right? It, it seems like they, in 2020, right, um, probably had... Uh, and even right after elected, sort of had sort of a, uh, there were several people that I would have picked out as leaders, right? Um, that seemed to have sort of lost that that stride. There were formal leadership positions uh, that folks were elected to just <laughs> to the break. Right? That was on my list. Uh, and so, what Carolyn King Arnold, now Mayor Pro Tem, and Omar Narvaez, Deputy Mayor Pro Tem. Um, for the lay listener, what do those positions actually do? Nothing. And why should people care about them? They should not. The, the reason to care about them is they're a window into the relative... You, you know what power rankings are? Like, you, 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 I, I love power rankings. I always think it's hilarious. It always, like, indicates... It, all it is is like an expression of the bias of the person who put yes. the power rankings They're like together. draft rank, draft rates. Yeah. Everybody yeah. gets an A. Yeah. <laughs> so, <coughs> pardon me, folks. The uh, um, what, what the council leadership positions are, which is the mayor pro tem and the deputy mayor pro tem are, is um, council elected positions to be council, quote, leadership, end quote. No one knows what that means. The offices come with no extra power. Um, there used to be a theoretical extra power that would arise in these offices if the mayor were traveling. Um, and so one time when Pauline Medrano was mayor pro tem and Mike Rawlings was out of the country and actually not even reachable, um, she put um, an update to the city's um, non-discrimination ordinance on the agenda with the intention of expanding it to um, uh, trans people, expanding it to uh, trans-inclusive health care, a bunch of other stuff that we hadn't done yet, you know. And uh, they 
they, meaning the mayor, his people, and city staff, went bananas. And the city attorney at the time, who was, uh, who was that? I can't remember who the city attorney was. It's been a few back. Issued an opinion that even though the charter is fairly clear that when the mayor's not there, the mayor pro tem is the mayor, that that did not mean that Mike Rawlings was unavailable, even though they actually couldn't get him on the phone. <laughs> it, it was only to be used in cases of like disability. And so uh, it, it's ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous opinion. But they I mean, literally tempor pro por tempore, right? Mayor pro tempore, literally for the for the time for the time. So the in the next charter amendment election, they actually succeeded in codifying this horrible legal opinion in the city's charter. So now it's exceptionally clear that Mayor Pro Tem and Deputy Mayor Pro Tem have no power whatsoever. The political history of this stuff, though, is that as um, black and Latino people started to be on the city council, and particularly after the 14-1 realignment of the council, where we have single member districts rather than people elected at large. White people elected at large. Right. Yeah. It, it was noticed by the, by the people who are black and Latino that they never were in the council leadership positions. And so what developed was an informal rule that's not written down anywhere called the Neapolitan rule. So whatever race the mayor is, the two council okay. leadership yeah. positions have to be the two other races. We have no idea what happens when Asians show up. We don't care, yes. apparently. <laughs> we have to find a different Superman. That's yeah. Superman instead of the yeah. Neapolitan approach. And so that... So does that mean so, Eric Johnson now white? Is Eric officially white? No, because this counts... This is a great question. <laughs> Because last year, this council could not, it always was the case that the Black Caucus and the Latino Caucus would recommend, they would choose. Or if the, if, if the mayor, you know, when Ron Kirk was in office, the White Caucus would mm -hmm. choose the white person. And they would send them forward and everybody just said... So the White Caucus is sending them for the Dallas Citizens Council? It was at that time. <laughs> um but, you know, Angela Hunt showed up and then it wasn't, yeah. sort of. Um, so, uh, and Sandy Grayson for that matter. Um, but the, so this last year, the, there was so much acrimony in the council about the leadership positions. And truly, this is one of the things that has kept council from doing anything during the intervening year is the hard feelings over these meaningless offices. Absolutely meaningless that they changed the rule and they allowed for these to be one-year offices and they all said that they didn't want the Neapolitan rule anymore. Now, that's bullshit. The next time they do this, the Neapolitan rule will spring back mm -hmm. to life because unwritten, as in baseball, unwritten rules yeah. are actually more important than the ones that you write down. Yeah. And they exist because they're capable of being enforced without being written down. Yeah. So that it'll it'll go back, but yeah, the what it tells you is that Omar and Carolyn are relatively more popular in their race groups 
and maybe also with some other people than the other people who wanted those offices, which would be Paula Blackman. Um, I don't think Jaime Resendez wanted to stay. He, you know, he, that was a year for him or whatever. Um, I don't, I don't know if any of the white people actually wanted it. Paula is sort of in a special situation because she's white and Latina. Apparently, she gets to decide. I didn't know she was Latina. I'd known her for twenty years before I knew that she was part Latina. But that's that's her background to to claim, and I think it's fine. Um, I don't know if any of the white representatives in North Dallas even expressed an interest. But what it, it what it tells you is that there's. I think it's a reflection a little bit of the attempt to take TC's job. Mm -hmm. I think that Carolyn and Omar are, were in the group that wanted to keep TC. And I think that the group that wanted to get rid of TC is being punished subtly through this election. And it is very subtle because honestly, the offices mean absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. All it tells you is the psychology of the council. Which is important, but eh, it's not as good as like actually doing stuff. <laughs> That's really interesting. As far as other sort of city council matters, the other thing that we, we touched on this, it's been a number of episodes ago when it was still in the midst was sort of the redistricting update that is now finalized, right? So on the 27th, council adopted a new city council map that will be used until after the next census in 2030. Uh, and after 2031, because we never get the census results right, so, until yep. the next year. Yep. Unless we, by some miracle between now and then, the Census Bureau or Congress allows the Census Bureau to use statistical sampling, which could speed the process up a lot. Yeah. Yeah, provided we still have like a democracy by the time 2030 rolls around. So yeah, it, also... may, it may not have any meaning for us whatsoever. <laughs> it's like, that's yeah. Assuming we still get to have elected representatives come in, um, th we talked about you know the the TC test. It was much ado about nothing. Uh, redistricting also much ado about nothing. Well, nothing the, much happened. The in twenty eleven, <clears throat> that was the redistricting where um, the Latinos really, really, really were agitating for another Latino seat, and instead of there were a couple there. Were, some maps that were up at council had come up from the commission. The commission referred multiple maps to council last time. And um, the, in any case, the, the short version of the story is that Mike Rawlings took a prominent black and a prominent Latino member of council to a back room and redrew the map with the idea that they would get rid of Scott Griggs. Um, and the, the other result of that was that Latino opportunity districts were not expanded um, and black opportunity districts were strengthened. Um, so it, nobody liked that outcome. So we changed the charter in 2014 to say you can't do that stuff in a back room anymore. Um, council has to have a huge supermajority to change the the um, redistricting commission's recommendation 
a, a, a super majority they could never really get for any serious changes. They changed a few little things kind of at the margins, but not nothing really. And uh, council was extremely frustrated by this rule. Um, I talked to several of them who expressed a lot of frustration about it. And I don't know. I think we made the right rule. I, I think this worked out kind of the way it was supposed to. We got a map that was not the best map. I drew the best map. Um, but, you know, we got a map that I could have predicted a year ahead of time would have been adopted, which is one that didn't do that much. Because councils knew, why are they going to vote for, or their representatives on the commission, yeah. why are they going to vote for a radically redesigned map when you just have a year earlier the people of the city of Dallas saying, here's who we want to represent us. It, it doesn't make, it's, it's not really democratic to do a very severe redistricting in this setting. If you had a situation where you had massive um, representational imbalance where, where the, the whole council was white, yeah, we would, then it would be time to radically redistrict. But this, there was just no serious political appetite for it. And I, I mean, I, I knew which, what kind of map we were going to come out with. Yeah. Yeah. And was amended several times, uh, right at the very end, right as well, the sort of, there were some neighborhoods that had been drawn into different districts that then ended up being kept where they, they were before. Right. So very little change overall. Um, but that's, uh, I don't know, that's your redistricting update. Well, I think, I mean, I think the thing is, I don't think it's bad. Um, you had very competitive races in multiple districts last time. So there's no guarantee that incumbents are just going to sweep back into office in 2023. There's no guarantee of that at all. In fact, it, a close race typically means that the next race will have multiple candidates. You know, it, it, if you, if, Okay, Paul Ridley won by more than 20 points. He, there's a very good chance he doesn't get any serious opposition. But a lot of these races were way closer. The ones in the north were much closer. And so, I, I, and then you're going to have a couple of open seats. But, I mean, between now and then, you could wind up with more open seats than we know. I mean, people do quit these jobs because sometimes the jobs kind of suck yeah very lucrative lot really great pay <laughs> uh and uh people always come up and tell you you're doing a great job when you're all the, the city time council. you're out at, at the tom thumb or whole foods the people that come talk to you they're always like hey philip hey tyler you're doing a great sometimes job. it's like three or four years after you've left council <laughs> and they they want to tell you um the other thing that that i had sort of on the city level um, was uh, our, our friend Eric Johnson released his uh, strategic priorities for public safety oh, no. on Tuesday. Um, I already know where you are on this too, but the listener will be entertained. <laughs> this is the summer of safety, but I don't know if you knew that or not, but um, we've declared it a summer of safety. Uh, and there are five strategic areas where the mayor has identified as his priorities for the coming year. Are you ready for them, Philip? I am ready. I know what they are, but go ahead. Blight, remediation. Uh, fostering better partnerships with schools. What is okay? Keep going. Focus deterrence. Uh, challenging the alcohol licenses of bad actors, 
um, and having committee briefings of the city council on these things, which number five seems like a thing that probably should be happening already. And it and does seem to be happening right. already. So I don't know why that's there a is a public priority. safety committee. The public safety committee chair wasn't briefed on these priorities before they were released to the public, which is kind of funny. You know, uh, well, and interesting that we've made it the summer of safety when the mayor was elected basically by telling Scott Griggs that there was no public safety crisis in Dallas. He did do that. That's um, exactly what he did. But now that's become, he's the law and order uh, candidate, right? Uh, and that everything is a public safety crisis. So blight remediation, school partnerships, focused deterrence, um, challenging alcohol licenses of bad actors and committee meetings of, or briefings of the Dallas or the Dallas City Council. So I'm interested in what he means by blight remediation. Blight is not is a word that has fallen out of favor in the same way that slum fell out of favor yeah. once people started to realize that they were just talking about black people. Yeah. Um, and so it's very weird for a black mayor in one of the 10 largest cities in the United States to use the term blight anymore. Um, the, the blight results from public disinvestment because the public disinvestment always precedes the private disinvestment um, that, that, that some people have used, used to define the term blight. I, I think blight's a very problematic term. Um, these choices are all made by people. Generally, I think it's the public decision makers who make the decisions before the private decision makers, but the result always winds up being that communities of color uh, get fewer resources than they should. So if he means by blight remediation, he intends to radically rethink uh, the city's budget to invest in areas of lower income and of poor infrastructure, then uh, I, will get, I will give pro bono time to this effort and I can write him a plan for being successful with that. If he means using code compliance and the city's other outdated tools to whip private owners into shape in areas of town that people think are less desirable, um, you know, that's just real racist. Uh, that that's that and more importantly is completely incapable of success you know and a lot of times I, I see Eric Johnson including back to going back to when he was running for mayor the first time championing things that simply aren't the city's business or are, are not possible I mean his his biggest initiative is workforce development the city doesn't do workforce development and someone who's interested in workforce development should probably have been aware that Dallas Community College does do workforce development and does a pretty good job of it. Now, if the city wants to make an investment with people who already know what they're doing to do workforce development, I'm on board. I, I, that sounds like a good use of public money, but I don't think that's what he means. I think what he's trying to do is say things that aren't measurable that he can't be judged on in an objective way so that he can, I, I promise you that, you know, around November, December, he's going to come forward with all of the ways in which he has improved his five initiatives 
so that he can use that in his re-election campaign. And it will all be fake. Like there will be there there will not be let whatever blight is. And I, I really don't want to use that word. There will not be fewer neighborhoods that need critical infrastructure investment by November or December than there are today. That's a guarantee, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so he's going to claim, he's going to declare victory at some point, and it's going to be illusory. It's going to be absolutely illusory. You know, going after liquor licenses, I'm 100% on board. I did it myself when I was in office. I couldn't tell that the TABC really gave a rat's ass what local leaders think. I mean, right now, Paul Ridley and Nathan Johnson and... Whoever my my uh, house representative is right now, um, who I'm going to have to apologize to because he's a ni- he's yeah, a nice guy that I know. Um, I'm in 108. You're in 108. Yeah. yeah. Um, Morgan Meyer. Morgan. Sorry, Morgan. Um, that they're all trying to get one of these places on Greenville that's had shootings. Yeah, it's shut down as of Monday. OT Tavern, no different one. The one next door to OT okay. Tavern. Another one. Um, and they're they're trying to get that license non-renewed, and God bless them. I hope they're successful. But this is the problems of violence near alcohol-serving businesses doesn't have anything to do with the alcohol-serving business not following the rules, and so this is going to be important for particular bad actors. But as a crime reduction strategy citywide, it doesn't mean anything. It really, it won't be effective. It doesn't mean anything. And so, you know, he wants to have all this stuff and he wants to have all these briefings to these council committees who had no warning of any of this. The, the job of the mayor is not to, in a council manager system, is not to set the priority of the city and drive it forward as it is in a strong mayor city. The job of the mayor primarily is to get the council members what they want. And talking to them and asking them what they want is a critical first step in getting them what they want. Yeah, that would assume that you actually care what other people think. Yeah. uh, Which probably not a huge... Well, I think he does care what other people think about him, right? Uh, But not... On a personal level. Yes. (laughs) And I think he he wants people to care enough about him to vote for him again. I don't think that's going to happen, by the way. But, um, yeah, in terms of accomplishment, in terms of requalifying himself for the office by showing positive change in his beloved city. You think he loves Dallas? He says it a lot. Um, I think he likes uh, feeling important and enjoys... I do too. It's wonderful. Enjoys attaching himself to all kinds of things that, uh, like his obsession with SMU's football team fascinates me um, because he didn't go there. Uh, to my knowledge. He did not. Uh, um, why he's so obsessed with the SMU football team fascinates me. My friends uh, give me a hard time whenever they're at Love Field uh, and his announcement, you know, I'm Dallas Mayor Eric Johnson. You're going to love my city. You know, the, the uh, mayor the mayor of a lot of cities, do, do, oh, I, yeah. a, lot of, a lot of places do that. Uh-oh. Is that Eric Johnson calling? I, I turned my phone to silent, but apparently my computer didn't know about that. Sorry. Uh, lot, mayors of lots of cities welcome people. In San Antonio, by God, it's George Strait. 
that uh, he, that's the announcement that plays at the San Antonio airport. See, that's pretty good. Yeah. That's a city that understands tourism. Yeah. Erica Badu, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. she could do the, the love field. Shaq lives here now. I mean, we could have... We, we could have some other voices. But yeah, mayors for forever in the city of Dallas could have done this. They, they certainly had heard this in other cities. I mean, I, I think I'm pretty sure I heard Bill de Blasio in... in a, in, um, Everybody loves him. Yeah, I mean, super popular. I was like, yeah, this is helpful. <laughs> um, but you know, maybe they maybe they wisely thought this this doesn't sound all that good. But whatever, I don't know. I you know, I think that poll that came out a couple weeks ago that had him at thirty two percent for reelection the matchup between him and yeah, I, I, I think that is. I mean, if I were if I were working for him in a political um, capacity, I would be sounding all the alarm bells. Uh, I think that that thing is a disaster. That's what I sort of wondered: does this public safety initiative campaign come from you know the fact that he went in front of Congress, right? He and Chief Garcia to tell them how they solved crime. They solved crime, and uh, statistics would show that crime not solved in Dallas. Well, and the the other thing, another one of his deals was focused deterrence. Yes. That's those interrupt violence interrupters that he hired a year ago. Did that work? Uh, not uh, again. As statistics would say, uh, probably not. So that's doubling down on something we already did, or is it a new kind of focused deterrence? No, yeah, that I don't. That remains to be. What, focused deterrence sounds a lot like Minority Report, doesn't it? It's <laughs> well, uh, what uh, the chief talks about what there's these like sixteen foot by sixteen foot squares that they've driven. Drawn all over. No, it's probably more than that. Is it fifty by fifty foot? I don't. Yeah, they have some these grid little thing. squares uh, that uh, they're they're deterring crime in. Uh, all this would be solved if we would just set the strip clubs down earlier. I mean, that's a pretty <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty quick way to solve crime in Dallas. Uh, you know, they just need to be on on board with with that. Um, this last one at XTC is very interesting. Everybody wanted to immediately say. Oh, you see, if only this has been clogged. My friend Matthew Marchant, who's a former mayor of Carrollton and a fabulous person, immediately was like, oh, this this blood is on the judge's hands. I was like, well, about 35 minutes later, what we figured out is it was a security guard shooting a deranged woman for trying to drive over a crowd of people. That doesn't exactly sound like a crime that was born out of somebody being naked at 3 a.m. That's, I mean, yeah, yeah. Lots of crime comes from that. Well, again, as I pointed out when we talked about that, you know, I'm sure that the number of convenience stores that are held up at 3 in the morning is probably pretty great, right? Uh, if you're going to go rob the, the convenience store, the 7-Eleven, the time to do that is probably at, at 3 in the morning. So we should well, probably I just, shut those down <clears throat> too, right? Yeah, you know, full disclosure, I represent the strip clubs. I think people already knew that. Um <clears throat> And the ones that are open late, yeah, they're not my cup of tea. They're the all-nude BYOB places because TABC has this rule that says nobody nobody can have – you can still be naked, but you can't have drinks after 2.15. That's too much sin. And, uh, you got to leave a little bit of room for Jesus in there. Yeah, it's something like that. I don't really know. <laughs> was, um, the – there's some way that the, the if the distributors could make money between two and six, they we would definitely have TABC going the other way. But the it, I am 
I don't want to go to those places, but what I know about those places is that they are the strip clubs that serve shift workers um, who are more uh, black and Latino than uh, office workers in general. And the dancers there are enormously more black, Latino, Asian than uh, at the regular strip, strip clubs that close at two. And, you know, you could say it's a weird thing to have strip club equity, but, you know, where do we draw the line? I, everybody who wants to talk about how those places are dangerous, the, the argument, you ask five questions and the argument always collapses to, they morally object to the idea of naked ladies dancing. Mm. Um, and you can have that objection, you can believe that that activity creates unique dangers and crime that other kinds of drinking don't create. It's not true. You can believe it, but you can't govern on the basis of your superstitious beliefs or on the basis of your puritanical values. Um, I mean, wait a minute. You sh you're not supposed to be able to. I think, I think that's rapidly changing in yeah. this country. Yeah. We've had a great week on, on that front. Um, hang on, hang on, hang on. We're, we're out of wine. <laughs> okay, we're back. I promise we're, we're taking it easier this week, folks. I hope that the, uh, <laughs> that I, th I hope it's a slightly easier episode to follow. Those are all the city things I had for this week, Philip. Do you have anything else city-wide to touch on? What was I gonna bring to the table? Oh, um, it's it's more personal. Although I think people would be upset about it if they understood it. The you know, I, I'm representing this um, Native American-owned construction company that was the low bidder on an important piece of the trail network, and they got disqualified for fraudulent reasons, um, for reasons that will be in the paper next week, I believe. Um, and so, you know, the right generally when you have a procurement like that, it's a low bid process. When you have that go wrong, you just cancel it and start over so mm -hmm. that the project actually gets done. No, no, no. Even though I've got an injunction against the city stopping the project, they could cancel the project and start over and just rebid it. Mm -hmm. they, they have that ability. It happens all the time. And instead of doing that, they notified me today that they're going to appeal that ruling that now two different judges have signed off on, but they want to go to the Dallas Court of Appeals where I, look, I don't have any special um, influence in the Dallas Court of Appeals. If I'm wrong, if my client's wrong, I know that the Dallas Court of Appeals will tell us we are wrong. Um, but I am good friends with those people <laughs> and I do think I know what they think. And I think that I, I don't think that this is going to be a successful thing for the city. The upshot of this is that the city attorney's office is out of control, um, is not informing counsel. I mean, the way we got here to the, di the disqualification that resulted in the lawsuit is that Dallas Parks and Rec staff misled the counsel about the true facts of this procurement. And because that discussion happened on video, anyone can go watch it. And in fact, I'm, 
I'll be doing a little editing of that video to present to, to the judge. So the, the, the issue is you have, if, if I represented you and you made a decision that resulted in you getting sued, and then we later found out that you made that decision on the basis of misinformation that you'd been given and that you would have changed your mind. If I don't tell you that information yeah. and I instead drag out litigation under your name, that's uh, not practice, right? I you think, could get sued for that. I think you would fire me. Yeah, I would probably fire you and you'd get in trouble, right? <laughs> and, yeah, you could get in trouble. And uh, and so it's just, I don't know. Uh, I hope that's not too uh, woe is Philip. Nobody ever feels sorry for the lawyer. But um, it's just, it's so maddening to see. It's, it's a really weird thing when you're litigating against the city you live in. Yeah. Because you're like, okay, kicking their ass, very fun. Very, very fun. And lucrative. But being a taxpayer here, I don't want to see people practice law this way. And more importantly, I don't want to see our friends on council have somebody doing stuff in their name that they did not agree to. And getting bad advice, not, not great. City attorneys are fascinating uh, beings, right? Um, it's a hard job. Very hard job. Very hard job. Uh, typically doesn't pay incredibly well. I it pays okay here. Um, yeah. We're paying Chris either 325 or 350 okay something yeah. like that and yeah. I think that the next one will probably have to go to 375 ish yeah. the, um, I'm never mad about people making more money um, that's Eric Johnson defend the defund the bureaucracy defund the bureaucracy thanks a lot um, I you know and and the the legal market is like a lot of other things accelerating really rapidly um, my my partners at my firm are trying to hire a, a baby lawyer and uh i had to have a little talk with them about how much money baby lawyers make these days because yeah. they they couldn't quite believe it and i was like well wait until i tell you how much they bill per hour like there's a reason they make that much yeah. money so i don't know it's a it's an interesting thing we'll we'll have a new city attorney before the end of the year i think so the non-Dallas but still Texas thing that I find fascinating this week. So the university. So we're we're backing out our focus. We're, yes, right. We're, we're going. We've zoomed in. Now we're going. Yeah, to, you're going. To you're going to thirty thousand foot level. So the University of Texas and the Texas Politics Project uh, unveiled on Tuesday a fascinating poll that they had uh, conducted of twelve hundred Texans, uh, twelve hundred Texas registered voters, um, and this poll was done the week prior to the Supreme Court. Uh, overturning Roe in the, the Dobbs decision. So, Interesting. Uh, in that poll, only 15% of those polled supported a complete ban on abortion access, just 15%, um, which was a really interesting statistic. I think 36% uh, of the folks, well, that was the highest that uh, things could get for some limits on on abortion. Um, 53% Wait, go back over that. What was the 36%? 36% was folks that um, basically that was like the highest level of support for there being um, um, the trigger law going into effect was basically the, what the 36% number was. Oh, I thought I read this different. I thought it was a very small number who were with who were in favor of the trigger law. I think yeah, it might have. It was around fifteen percent was above uh, for everything. I think the trigger law right is something that's not a total ban, but six weeks operationally. 
Operationally, yeah. it operates as a band. Uh, because most women, a lot of women don't know they're pregnant at that, at that point in time, right? And it's, they, they tried to call it, well, okay, we're talking about two different things. Yeah. <clears throat> the trigger law is, has nothing to do with that. The trigger law makes abortion illegal in Texas within 30 days of Roe being overturned. Yeah, the judgment being issued, which, talk about lawyeries, that's a weird thing to me. The judgment doesn't happen when the Supreme Court decision comes down. Yeah, it's not called a judgment. Yeah. 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 Um, so uh, the it, I, in any case, that's the trigger law. The SB eight is the rule that says no abortion after six weeks, and they base that on the idea that there's a fetal heartbeat detectable at six weeks. That is nonsense. That that is not biologically the actual truth. That's, that's fake. The, uh, yeah, we could uh, have a whole episode about abortion politics, <laughs> but uh, fascinating. So that was one of them. The other issue both ones uh, were, uh, they talked about gun rights. So 78% of those uh, polled support expanded background checks for gun sales. Uh, that's I, I'm that sure one's been popular for a long time. The legislature is gonna get right on, on that. 66% of them support red flag laws. Right. Um, this was, and that's after re national Republicans launched an attack on red flag laws. Right. So you've got to know that that number was way higher than that before. And if people understand red red flag laws, they would support them. I mean, it'd be it'd be much higher percentage. It's fascinating. I mean, even so, we had that that shooting in Highland Park, Illinois, the last week. Mm -hmm. um, and was it in 2019 that um, the state came in and took all these knives away from the the young man who had committed the the shooting? Um, and they placed it on some kind of list. Yes, but they also have a red flag law in Illinois, but they didn't take his guns away. Uh, and he is not on a list that would have prevented him from getting well, He didn't have guns at the time. At the time. Correct. He Correct. bought the guns later and shouldn't have been able to if they had put him on the right list, right? I think that's what it is. And his dad signed off and said he thinks he's a real good guy. So uh, <laughs> so there's, there's that. Um, so the, the gun pieces were interesting. But, uh, and, you know, the, the economic piece one, and I'll get to the, the most fascinating part of this in a minute. So 53% of those surveyed said their, econo their personal economic situation is worse off than it was a year ago. Um, oh, shit. 58% said the Texas economy is worse than it was a year ago. Um, and a whole bunch of folks, uh, oh my God. much larger, said that, that the United States economy is worse than it was a year ago. Part of me, I wonder, is how much of this is sort of the, like, the inflation porn that people get beat and the over gas the price with, with in the media, um, where you know, I don't know, I I don't know a whole lot of people who have made, uh, and this is probably a reflection of, of my privilege, so I'll, I'll state that from the beginning. I don't know many people who have made a whole lot of changes in their lives um, from a year ago to today because of the high price of things. Well, you know, the high price of gas affects a very small number and of people typically poor people but it affects them yeah very severely but the you know the thing is it the number of people that it affects and the way that it affects them would be much more quickly and equitably and sustainably solved by just giving them some more fucking money yeah people got paid more money uh would help out a lot right um, Instead, we threw away climate policy and... Uh, we're nice to Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And that's paid huge dividends for us. <laughs> um, but the, the fascinating part of the poll, and the one I want to zoom in on with this, Philip, is that 
Uh, in the poll, 59% of Texans said that the state is on the, the wrong track. Uh, so right track, wrong track. 59% said the state is on the wrong track. That is the largest share of negative responses in the history of this poll, which dates back to like 2008. Uh, and so, you know, almost 60% of, of the folks polled think that the state is on the wrong track. Um, and that is almost entirely due to a collapse in support for Governor Abbott among independents. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the if you look at that race in particular, Beto is now within six points of Greg Abbott, um, 45 to 39 percent. Um, and so, what I what is I is that on is that was that Quinnipiac? No, this is from the the University of Texas Texas Politics poll. Okay, so the Quinnipiac came out was it five points i think yeah it was, it was narrower yeah and, and that it has moved by like six percent since they had done their, mm -hmm. their last one right? well i actually just think that is that is a uh, a reflection of the poll structure so the T ut one was asking more about policy stuff the mm -hmm. quinnipiac one went very light on policy and was straight to who are you supporting? This is the one you got called. I got called for, and so I'm gonna. Who are you supporting, Philip? <laughs> we'll get to that. Um, I am going to take the very rose-colored glasses view that the Quinnipiac poll is actually the best one that's been done so far. I still think it's way too early for it to be very meaningful, um, but I think you're. I think we're in the range. I think August polls is when you really need to start paying attention. Well, and the fascinating thing about this is that it was done prior to the Roe decision. Yeah. Right. And so one would assume, uh, and based on sort of the generic congressional uh, rating that had swung in the Democrats' favor now for the first time in forever, yeah. right, that, that that gap has probably closed even, even more, um, which, you know, I think is fascinating for a couple of reasons. One... Uh, I feel like had if Joe Biden were a better president uh, and a better leader, um, and, and that's just to say that I feel like Joe Biden is going to be a drag on Democrats come November, I think this would be a tremendous opportunity for Texas Democrats to sweep uh, two of three, if not all three, of the, the big statewide races in I, the fall. And here's more Pollyanna, whatever you want to call it, rose-colored glasses. Um I think, I agree, the Biden administration is a wet blanket. It's not, it's not good. Um, it's not good in all the ways that progressives said it was not going to be good. In fact, it's worse because he's gone back on campaign promises he made immediately after he, he tied up the nomination in order to get the backing of people like AOC and Bernie. Yeah. Um, and it, 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 you know, everybody says... You know, he's so he's a avuncular, he's the super nice guy and what but dude, it's very cynically gone back on a bunch of stuff he said he was gonna do. But I have always thought um that Texas um uh, off cycle non presidential deals were about Texas. They're never about national. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to get a national level story to really move the needle locally. And this, to whatever extent people have bad feelings about Joe Biden, and believe me, I've got a lot of them. Um, that's not this podcast, you know? Yeah. Um, you can follow it, Philip and I on Twitter for our... Yeah, yeah, for, yeah please. At, at Philip T. Kingston on Twitter for all of your negative Biden takes. Um, the, no, the, it's about Greg Abbott. 
It is primarily about Greg Abbott. It is way, way less about Dan Patrick, and it's a little bit less about Ken Paxton. Um, and that is not a good story for Texas Republicans. Like they, they're in bad fucking trouble. I yeah. think when because uh, they've done such a terrible job of running the state, right? I mean, yeah. you know, and even when we take back to you know sort of the the winter storm in twenty twenty one, where Abbott's on Fox News blaming the Democrats for Texas's power grid struggle when a, a statewide a Democrat has not won a statewide race since nineteen ninety four, right in this state. Um, they just are doing a terrible job of running the state of, of, of Texas, right? And, and, and his response, I, I mean, I really think Uvalde is more important than people are giving it credit for. And his immediate response of it, it could have been worse. What? Yeah, right? Yeah. It's just, I mean, it's the opposite of leadership. It's, it is tone deaf. It is, I mean, it's just disgusting. The guy who's supposed to be in charge in moments of crisis is not equal to the task and is and is not empathetic to people who just died Couldn't and people just lost right, people. any kind of emotion at all uh in, in that press conference and it reaction. just i think that that's much more important that because pe people are emotional but also that's a real issue that's a real thing that parents worry about a lot and kids worry about it too mm -hmm. you know and so I, I think that this stuff is really piling up. And I think that one of the theories I've seen, hypotheses I've seen, is that um, Dobbs um, doesn't do much, if anything, to make a conservative asshole get off his ass in November, but it does everything to make women go to the polls. And if that's true, and if I'm right in general that this is a referendum on the performance of the big three, Abbott, Paxton, and Patrick, um, I don't know why anybody would feel uh, uh, hopeless about November. I, I, I voted for Ann Richards in 1990. I'd turn 18 six days beforehand or whatever, something like that. You know, that's the very first person I ever voted for. That Democratic ticket was fine. I mean, it had very good people in it. Most of them did not win. Um, but I, I mean, that's, that's when I first was able to vote. I've never seen a ticket this good. In my life, yeah. I've never seen a ticket this good. Rochelle Garza, if she's not actually ahead of Ken Paxton right now, uh, then I don't trust her poll, honestly. I, my, our friend Justin Nelson, who ran last time, is a fantastic lawyer and a great human being, but not the best candidate, and he didn't have any money. And he came within three points of knocking off Ken Paxton. And since then, Ken Paxton has been raided by the FB fucking eye. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, I just don't see how this exciting young Latina lawyer who's got some real skins on the wall, some real like litigation wins. And not indicted. Is not indicted, is a new mom. You know, lots of reasons to like her and think good things about her. I, if she's not going to, if she doesn't win, then Texas is a very much more lost cause than anyone has thought for a long time. But I believe that at a minimum she wins, and it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest to see Beto and Mike Collier win as well. 
So the polls, uh, the, the cross tabs on that, so it had uh, Abbott up six points. Uh, it shows Dan Patrick leading Collier by 12 points and Ken Paxton leading Garza by eight points. But lots of undecided people, especially the attorney general's rate, I think something like 25 or 30% of the folks uh, said that they don't have an opinion yet, um, which is a huge, huge number. And you can't call those people undecided. He's been in office for a long time and he's got huge name ID and all of it's negative. A huge percentage of those people who said that they're undecided are um, not undecided. And some of them are Republicans who are come grappling with, can they possibly vote for this person again? Yeah. And there are very few of those who are going to cross over and vote for Rochelle, but they will skip the race. Or vote for the Libertarian. Right? Yeah, or vote for the Libertarian, whatever. Yes, it's some version of throwing away their vote. And, uh, and so, I mean, it's, I think it is trouble. For Texas Republicans. Definitely right there, right? Uh, uh, and so the, the clarion call, right? 123 days uh, between now and, and November uh, to save uh, Texas, right? Uh, and so, again, if folks are looking for things to do, you know, get on board with those uh, campaigns because uh, we are right there from being able to, to make a real difference for the city of Texas. And Governor Abbott continues to screw things up, right? So... Um, there was this story that uh, just broke yesterday about the amount of time that juvenile folks that are in juvenile detention spend oh, indoors, uh, 22 hours a day. They spend inside because there aren't enough staff to be able to, to watch them. Did you see that the Texas Juvenile Justice Commission went on divert? No, I didn't. Yeah. It is not. Okay. You're a, a lawyer. You're a, a judge in a juvenile court and you have a defendant in front of you who's done something very violent and very bad and needs to be incarcerated, it's not happening this week. So there's nowhere for them to go. No. That, uh, yeah. Which, you know, that's also wild, right? Which, you know, between that and the stuff with the Department of Family and Child Services um, shows that the Abbott administration just has no regard at all for uh, taking care of children. The state's doing a terrible job of that, even among juveniles, folks that are in foster care, you know, whatever. Uh, they talk about being pro-life, um, which really means they're pro-life right up until the point which we are alive. <laughs> they go straight to hell, right? Because they don't care about you at all. I've not seen any rush among the Republicans in Texas to sort of increase funding for um, you know mental health, uh, women's health, maternal health organizations. You know, Texas has a tremendously high rate of maternal mortality rate, infant mortality rates. I don't see a huge push to expand Medicaid. Um, right in the state to be able to provide health care for, for well, folks. Well, and, and remember that uh, Texas Juvenile Justice uh, Commission and the, uh, what did they change the name of that department? Families and Children? Yeah, Family and Child Services, I think is the, yeah. They both got cut. Yeah. They moved money from there to putting um, state troopers on the border. Yeah. So, right, so Abbott, uh, yeah, again, cannot muster a tear when uh, children are m m murdered in their school. Uh, his administration places uh, children uh, in, in places in, in homes where they're sexually abused, right, and, and doesn't do anything about that. Um, our juvenile detention centers are understaffed uh, and overpopulated. Um, and this is a man who expects people to vote for him come November. Uh, you know, that goes back to the, sort of the central thesis that I've, I've talked about a lot, where I, a Democrat running in Texas, this is a state where nothing works. 
uh, Indiana, uh, our, our, the state's motto is Indiana is the state that works. Uh, Texas is the state that doesn't work. Nothing functions properly, right? Um, when, I, when I moved here, I had to go to Fort Worth to get a driver's license and stand outside in 95 degree heat for four hours uh, to get my driver's license. Thank God I had a job that allowed me to be able to do that, right? Um, you know, nothing works well in this state and these sort of scandals continue to come out drip by drip by drip. You know, Abbott yesterday, uh, it comes out that he's uh, sort of asking or directing DPS to deport people. Uh, Which there's a Supreme Court case that, that says, says that's not their job. Right? That doesn't say it's not their job. It says they can't they do cannot, it. Yeah. They do not have jurisdiction to do this. And he knows that. He was on the state Supreme Court. Yeah. Um, and was the attorney general. Of was the attorney general. Texas. He, he knows that case and he doesn't care. That is the definition of an election year stunt. And he's hoping that you're stupid enough to not know that. Right? But he's also hoping that people are stupid enough to buy his um, Invasion. Mal malarkey, yeah. to, to use a Bidenism, Joe. about uh, crisis on the border. There, Invasion. That was the word of the week. Right? There is no there crisis on the border. Which uh, the invasion was also the manifesto that was uh, the words used from the El Paso shooter. The El Paso right? shooter. Yeah, and and they're you know they they don't even care that the that the words that they use uh, involve danger to Texans. Um, and I, I just I just I continue to think also that we have not seen the campaign ads that are going to drive many Texans decision making. Um, are people dying? I think there are a lot of videos and images and you have to be very careful about how you use these so as not to offend people or re-traumatize them or whatever. But it, it is still the case. Uh, follow me on Twitter for more analysis of who is the deadliest person to Texans in history, but it is still the case that Greg Abbott has killed more Texans than any person in history. And uh, it's not really close. Second, kind of doesn't matter. It's Hitler, if you want to know. But it, it, he, 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 no matter how you describe his share of excess COVID deaths based on not having um, healthy regulations, give him that. Give him the 700 Texans who froze to death in um, in the winter storm. Um, give him the what we now have discovered are hundreds of children who have been murdered while in state custody. Um, you know, it, yeah. it, it's it, these are shocking numbers. Back, you know, Santa Ana only killed 700 Texans. There weren't that many of us back then. You know. Uh, it, it, this is this is a real deal, and I I hope. I'm not on Beto's campaign team, not really available for the job if they if they wanted it. But I hope that they know that they should be taking pictures of dead Texans and putting them on campaign ads. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Part of again, yeah, Abbott uh, right has has killed people, uh, not directly, but certainly uh, indirectly, right? Um, and it's just a, a terrible governor and a state that does not work. Nothing functions properly. Uh, and hits continue to coming. You know, the big push that they're pushing now is vouchers in education, which uh, if there's one thing that Republicans and Democrats in Texas generally agree upon is that we don't really want people screwing with our public school system, right? They may think that, that teachers are, are groomers, uh, right? And they worry about the critical race theory, but they would really like you to continue to fund their public 
public school. Well, uh, this and is now they're going to go is, after that. Well, this is how he got so unpopular in the legislature. So here's how the politics of that works: the Republican legislators can talk tough about teachers being they don't call them teachers they call them government bureaucrats yeah in in the legislature that's typically how republicans talk about teachers um and they can do all that but they know that they have to deliver in their districts and each all of their districts require them to be at least somewhat tolerable for public education there are ideologues in the senate and then maybe Greg Abbott, who honestly feel like they're, and their, their long-term goal is to tear down public education or replace it with private education. That's not a big secret. But with Abbott, the, he's not, the legislators are not gonna love him doing this ahead of them trying to get reelected because what they're doing, this is a very cynical political deal. There, are, there is a group of hardcore right-wingers, voters, who love this voucher bullshit. They love it, love it, love it. It's not a big percentage, but what they're trying to do is build just enough little narrow percentages to come out in November to keep him in office. And that's how scared they are. Honestly, this is another plank in my theory about that the, the Republicans are in bigger trouble and they know they're in bigger trouble than it appears from these polls because they're going after niche, voter slices little slices of voters here and there and it's practically it's what they should do politically it's what they should do morally it's reprehensible but that's never stopped him before no. right um that was all that that i had yeah and we gotta we gotta go to dinner uh we gave people homework right so we if did. you care about 345 contact your city council person uh, and if you haven't gotten engaged in campaigns for Beto and Mike Collier and Rochelle Garza, uh, it would be a great weekend to send them money. Uh, but better yet, find ways to, to block walk, to get involved, and to talk to your friends, especially those who can be swayed, right? Um, and have conversations with them about how poor of a job Greg Abbott and the Texas Republicans have done running the state of Texas. Or if you have Republican family members or friends, it's also just as effective to talk to them about how uh, Ken Paxton may not be able to be elected because he's uh, being convicted of federal crimes. We can only hope. Turn, turning off the other side is sometimes an, un, un, an overlooked strategy for propping up your own. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, I think that's all we have. All right, man.